0: Well, uh, good morning, and and thank you guys for coming. Welcome. Do you realize we only have, John said this earlier, like three-ish more weeks of summer? All the students said, boo. And all the parents said, yeah, Yeah, amen. Uh, So in light of that, let me tell you about some exciting things coming up. So we have started a kind of an official, unofficial partnership with Jane Ball Elementary here in Cedar Lake. And our community outreach team, our newly formed community outreach team, is working on some things to just enhance that partnership and bless the socks off of this school. So uh, first thing is we are going to uh, relaunch our Kids Hope program. Now, if you've been here at Cedar Lake for a while, we didn't do it last year because of COVID. Uh, we did a, a couple years ago, and and basically, it's a mentorship program where uh, adults spend one hour a week with a student. And these are students who some of them have tough home lives at home. They they just there's it's a huge impact to pour into a kid for only one hour a week. And so we would encourage you to be praying for the mentors, consider being a mentor, and. Uh, if you're not sure if you want to be a mentor, you can be a prayer partner for a mentor. So you're going to hear a lot more about that next month. Uh, we also are going to be doing a school supply drive. And so you're going to in email and social media this week uh, at Bethel.cl. You're going to see info about that, details about it next Sunday. So be, be praying and thinking about that. Just we, we just want to lavish this school with the love of Christ, show the love of Christ, and continue to build this relational bridge. Uh, August 20th, there's going to be a team that is going to put on a a meal or a refreshment table for the teachers, all the teachers and faculty there. And we're going to give little gifts for each of the faculty members. And then maybe the one I'm most excited about is we're going to do an Adopt a Teacher initiative where we want to see every single faculty member at Jane Ball adopted by one of you or by a, a family here, which means you are committing to pray for them every week throughout the school year. Maybe from time to time you write them encouragement notes with prayer and scripture. Maybe once a semester you get them a, a little gift card. But we want to show the love of Christ and and uh, uh, just love on them. So what do you say, church? Is that something we can get excited about? Just loving on our community. And this is this is just the beginning. You know, I'm really excited about this community outreach team. I think we have a lot of exciting things in the months and years ahead as we try to pour into our community, invest in our community with the love and truth of Christ. So exciting stuff. Uh, secondly, in, in our first service, we had a time where we prayed over the Otis family, Andy and Julie and, and their daughters. Uh, how many of you know the Otises? Show of hands. Okay, several of you. So Otises have been here about 18 years with this congregation, and I don't know if you knew this, but two or three months ago, we appointed, the, appointed Andy to be one of our newest campus elders and He went through the approval with the lead elders, and literally that same week, he was hired at a new job at Indy. So they are moving. This was their last Sunday with us, and so we had a time of honestly shedding tears together in the first service as we laid hands on them and prayed over them because here's the thing. We're not losing them. I don't ever want us to see when, when a family moves that we are losing a family. We want to see us as sending them out prayerfully for the kingdom of God to do amazing things for Jesus. And so uh, like, like Paul and Barnabas and the church of Antioch, we want to send them out prayerfully. And so, so we do that. So be praying over the Otis's this week. And if you see them or, or you're Facebook friends with them, whatever, send them a little message and just say, hey, we love you and encourage you and you know, I'm praying for you. All right, well, with that said, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we ask that you would have your way now and always. God, in our lives, would you speak to us from your word because your word is truth and your word tells us that you sanctify us, you make us holy by your truth. Thank you that you are the steadfast foundation, you are the rock upon which we can put our trust, we can put our life, we can... Lean on you because you are good. You are righteous. You are faithful. There is nothing better than you. We just sang that earlier. Nothing. Nothing is better than you. Oh God, may we believe that with all our heart, all our mind, all our soul, all our strength. And may we love you with all that we are. God, we do pray that you would give us faith. Increase our faith. Lord, we do believe. Help our unbelief. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Do you guys remember trust falls? Remember trust falls? Like you'd go, trust fall, and then lean back, you cross your arms, and you go back, and you hope the person behind you catches you. As I was preparing this message, I literally, I was thinking, I'm going to have some people come up. I'm going to have a volunteer come up, and we're going to do a trust fall right here, like right off the stage. And then it dawned on me, Jared, you're not a youth pastor anymore. (laughs) You can't do stuff like that. And here's how I know that I'm maturing, that I'm, that I'm a campus pastor now. I realized that's a lot of liability. Like, whoever did that would probably have to sign a waiver. It's like a pending lawsuit if it goes bad. I mean, there's just, this is not good. But you get the general premise, right? When someone does a trust fall, they fold their arms, they close their eyes, they buckle their knees, lock their knees, and then they tilt back and they just fall and hope that the person behind them catches them lest they wake up with a concussion and a bruised tailbone. That's how it works. But there are are two types of people who do this. There's the ones who, okay, trust fall. You know, they they bend their knees, they put their arms back, they lean back with reservation. All right. They're not really doing a full trust fall. And then there are the ones who, I mean, it's like timber! They just come back, straight back, I'm coming back with reckless abandon, those are the crazy people, but I admire them because man, that takes guts, it takes faith, it takes a pretty good amount of of faith to do a full trust fall because you are completely entrusting your life into someone else's hands, literally. But isn't that what faith is? Completely entrusting yourself, your life into another's hands? Authentic trust cannot be half-hearted. It cannot be weak-kneed. It cannot be on the fence. It is resolute. And so we're continuing our series, bottom lines of the Bible. And the bottom line is basically this: without faith, it is impossible to please God. So go to Hebrews chapter eleven. This is very one of the most famous passages in the Bible, Hebrews eleven on faith known as the Hall of Faith, and we're specifically going to look at verse 1 and verse 6. So to set the table for you, the author of Hebrews is writing to Jewish Christians, Hebrew Christians, to remind them of the supremacy of Christ. That's a fancy way of saying, Jesus is better. We just sang it earlier, nothing is better than you. Nothing is better than you, Lord. Jesus is better than Moses. He's better than the angels. He's better than the sacrificial system. He's better than the high priest. He's better than the sacrifices. Jesus is just flat better. If we were to rename this book in Hebrews, it would be Jesus is better. That's the whole theme. But the author is also writing to encourage them to endure difficulty for the sake of Jesus. Christians were undergoing immense persecution and suffering for their faith. So it would be easy for them to throw in the towel and give up. But the author is urging them, endure, persevere, keep the faith, keep going. And he does so by articulating the gospel over the, over the, the course of 10 chapters. Showing how all of it points to Jesus. All, everything in the Old Testament points to Jesus. Jesus is the fulfillment of all of that. Jesus is better. And then in chapter 11, he describes the faith of the saints of old to encourage them to strengthen the resolve. By faith is the most important phrase in this book and certainly in this chapter. He says it 18 times in successive paragraphs. By faith, so-and-so did this. By faith, another person did that. By faith, by faith, by faith. Faith is the means by which something is accomplished. So he is showing them that their heroes of the faith were not superheroes. These are ordinary men and women trusting in an extraordinary God. So what is faith and why is it important? Well, for that, let's look at Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. And I'm going to ask that everyone stand in honor of the reading of God's word right now. It says this, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the people of old received their commendation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. So here he is saying, listen, it's creation ex nihilo, it's creation out of nothing. None of us were there at the beginning. And so by faith, we actually trust that everything we see in this created universe was created by the hand of God. That's an act of faith. Verse four by faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now, before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, here it is, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. You guys can be seated. Unless you want to stand. I'm fine if you stand the whole time. That's, that's cool. Totally up to you. So Hebrews 11:1, he says faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things unseen. Faith. It's the Greek word pistis and it means a strong confidence in something trustworthy, something reliable, and we trust God because he is trustworthy. We trust God because he is reliable. Come on church, is God trustworthy? Is God reliable? And so we trust him, but is it merely intellectual assent with God's word? Is it just we agree with a set of facts? We believe intellectually. We agree with these things. Oh, I I believe mentally. It's a mental exercise. Or is there something more to faith? True faith does not merely agree with God's word. It leads one to act upon it. So we are justified by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone. Christ is the ground of our salvation. Faith is the instrument of our salvation. And works are the fruit of our salvation. Not the root, the fruit, the byproduct of our salvation. And so the author here in verse 1 gives a two-part rhetorical definition of faith. He says, faith is the assurance of things hoped for. Assurance. This is the foundation or evidence of something in reality. So faith is the objective grounds upon which subjective confidence may be based. There is an absolute certainty in belief, a confidence that what is hoped for is real and will happen. I'm sure you've seen in the news out west, all over the west, in California, Arizona, New Mexico, Utah, all over, there is a massive drought going on. Just a horrible drought, one of the worst in decades. They have not got much precipitation. Now, someone could hope for rain, hope for precipitation, pray for it, hope for it, hope for the best, but someone with faith, like, I believe it's going to rain today, they're going to pack an umbrella. You know, I, I admire, how do I say this? I admire the conviction of those conspiracy theorists who are like end of the world folks. You know what I'm talking about? Like, Bro, end of the world, it's this, it's coming this week, it's coming this week, and they go out in their backyard and they build this big bunker, like, they're wackadoodle, but I admire their faith, I admire that they steadfastly believe what they believe, and they're acting upon it. Folks, that's faith, faith doesn't just talk, faith isn't all words, faith leads to action, and that faith is grounded upon hope, that's what he's saying here, so what is the ground of our hope? It's the assured promises of God. Christians, we should be the most hopeful people on the planet because our hope is not in this life. Our hope is in something better. Amen? And so we see in in Hebrews 11, example after example of key figures, men and women of faith, who, who believed in something better. Verse 4, we see Abel. You have Cain and Abel, two of the first humans in history. And Cain presents a sacrifice, a sacrifice offering to the Lord. It says in Genesis 4 that he presented some of his crops. And then Abel, who was a sheep herder, presented the best, the firstborn of his sheep. He presented the absolute best that he had. So Cain held back. In self-sufficiency, with a heart of pride, he held back. He didn't give God his best, but Abel gave God his best because he believed there was something better. This came from a heart of faith. By faith, Abel offered a better sacrifice. Abraham. Abraham was in the land of his ancestors, and God says, I want you to go to a different land. I want you to go to a different country. And Abraham says, Okay. And he leaves everything he knew to go into discomfort, to go into the unknown, not knowing where God was leading him, not knowing how and when and where. But he goes because his citizenship was not of this world, but of the next, not in this life, but the next. And so he gave it all with a hope of something better. Moses, prince of Egypt had lap of luxury, he had fame, he had fortune. He had it all and he forsook it all to suffer with his fellow brothers and sisters, the Israelites, his own people. Why? Why would he do that? Because he believed in something better. Rahab, a prostitute, lived in the city of Jericho. Now, Jericho was a walled, fortified city that was believed to be impenetrable. No one could take down Jericho. And here come two Israelite spies, and they tell her, hey, listen, this wall, these walls are coming down. This city is going to be destroyed in the judgment of God. It's going to be defeated. You need to get your house in order and, and tell your family. And, and she could have just said, oh, what do you know? This is Come on, no one can defeat Jericho. It's Jericho! No one can knock these walls down. But she believed in the word of God. She believed what they said, and she hid the spies, and it was commended for her faith. She believed in something better. That's what faith is. It believes in something better. It hopes in something better. Jay Adams said, by faith, they all put the unseen world first. Things in this world, including safety and life itself, meant nothing in comparison to that toward which they were looking. These people, who had nothing more than God's promises, were able to face all sorts of trials because they believed, they acted as though they were promised, what they were promised was already present. So certain were they that God's word would not and could not fail. They gave up something of temporary, momentary pleasure for a better, long-lasting promise. This was hope leading to faith. And they did not simply live for the passing moment. They realized that there was more to life than the temporary, immediate scene because God had told them so. They believed the word of God. And that kind of faith only comes through a personal encounter with God. Man, I don't know about you, but I want that. (laughs) I want that kind of faith where I'm I'm willing to abandon it all. I'm willing to do the trust fall of faith with God because I believe in something better. I'm hoping in something better. Do you want that kind of faith, church? Man, we should want that. And I look at at my own faith. I look at my own heart. I look at the, the faith of the average American churchgoer and it is fickle at best. It comes and goes With the waves of circumstances, it waffles, it waxes, it wanes. And I don't want a fickle faith. I want a steadfast faith in God and his word. See, there's a correlation you look here between faith and hope. Hope is a state of mind. Faith is hope lived out. It's hope acted upon. I've never been skydiving. Any of you ever been skydiving? Show of hands a few of you, Uh, props, props to you. I I want to go, I want to want to go skydiving, but I don't want to go skydiving. Like, you would have to drug me and knock me unconscious to make me go, I'm I'm not going to do it. But I admire, you know, I saw a few hands, I admire those who do, because man, that is gutsy. You are literally jumping out of a plane and letting gravity do its thing as you plummet toward the ground, hoping that this little bit of fabric keeps you up so you don't, okay, I know that's graphic, but that's what you're doing. That's, that's crazy, but it's, it's bold, it's gutsy, and I admire those who do it. Now, when you're on the plane, you have your, your parachute. You could hold the parachute and go, okay, I hope this parachute holds me up. I hope it holds me up. But then you never get off the plane you don't really trust in the parachute. You might hope in the parachute, but you don't trust in the parachute. The ones who trust in the parachute, the ones who have faith in the parachute, they're like, okay, this thing, I know this thing is going to keep me up. And they just, Geronimo, jump out as they, you know, are careening down toward the ground. They pull the ripcord and they believe that this fabric is going to hold them up. There's a difference between hope and faith. By faith, you put your hand, life in the hands of the parachute. Now, an important distinction is needed at this point. Does your trust alone, does your trust itself in that parachute save you? Yes and no. The parachute is what saves you. The parachute is saving you, but your trust in the parachute puts you in the necessary position to be saved by the parachute. So does faith, intrinsic faith, in and of itself save you? Well, perhaps we're splitting semantic hairs here, but the object of your faith, that is Jesus, he is the one who saves you. But by faith in him, you put yourself in the necessary position to be saved by him. Faith never exists in a vacuum. Faith cannot exist in a vacuum. By its very definition, faith always has an object. There is an object of faith. In fact, without the object of our faith, namely Jesus, our faith is worthless. It's meaningless. Jesus is the one who does the saving. So faith is taking God at his word and putting your life in his hands. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, but it's also the conviction of things not seen. Look what he says in verse 1. It's a conviction of things not seen. Conviction here, this is compelling evidence that makes someone fully realize the truth or validity of something. You know, we have physical eyesight And physical eyesight creates empirical evidence about the physical world around us. I can look and see that you are all here. And by my sight, I know you're here. I know that you exist. I know this podium exists. I know that you're here because I have the sight. And it's strong evidence to suggest that you are actually here. There's a strong conviction that comes from sight. Look what he's saying. Faith produces conviction about unseen realities. I mean, the paradox here is fascinating. How can something you cannot see be so convincing that it's as if you see it and understand it fully? I don't know if you noticed, but I'm wearing glasses now. I, it was kind of funny. In the first service, someone uh, told me, they said, you know, you kind of look like a, a NASA engineer from the 1960s. <laughs> I don't know how to take that. Thanks, I guess. But uh, here's what here's what happened. Several months ago, I'm with my wife, and we have our girls in the back, and I'm driving at night, and we're probably you know in the streets of Cedar Lake somewhere here. And, and as I'm driving, I go, "Sky, do you see that? What is that kid doing? There's a kid just on the side of the road, just standing there. Like that kid is going to get run over if he's not careful. And as we get closer and closer to that kid, Sky goes, "Jared, that's a mailbox." Can you call your eye doctor and set an uh, appointment up for me? <laughs> and so I go to the optometrist a couple weeks ago, and I'm sitting in the chair, and they pull the, you know the, the instrumentation down. Number one or number two, which, which is better? Number one or number two? Same? I didn't give same as an option, did I? Number one or number two? Uh, number one? Okay, next one. Number one or number two. Same. Same? No, what did I just say? And so we go through this like 20, 30 times. We go through all, number one, number two, number one, number two, and we get to the end, and she, the doctor says, all right, now I'm going to show you what your eyesight looks like without glasses. She flips the lenses. Okay, yeah, that looks like what I see. Okay, now I'm going to show you what your eyesight looks like with the right prescription, with the right lenses. Whoa! Like, what is that? That's what I'm supposed to be seeing? And it's like you could see for the first time. Now, my, my prescription is not that strong. It's a light prescription. But man, I could see life as it was meant to be. There's clarity. And faith is the lens by which we see the unseen. There's clarity in life. We see things for how God always intended it apprehends as fact what is imperceptible by our senses. And this is why we live by faith and not by sight. Now, faith is not blind. Faith, we have reason and logic, philosophical evidence to depend our faith upon. Faith is not blind, but man, it can be blurry at times. They say that when you're learning a new language or learning something like math, where there's principles, lessons that build upon one another, when you're in the middle of that current lesson, there's like a fogginess to it. There's a mental fog. You don't quite get it. You don't see it clearly. And they say just persevere, just push through and You'll move on to the next lesson, the next one, the next one. And they build upon each other. Then you can look back at all the previous lessons and you see where there were once was fog, there's now clarity. And this is how life is, right? The way forward is to remember what is behind. We, we, we press on in the, in the present, in the future, certainly. It's blurry. We can't see. Things are foggy. But we can look behind us. We can look and see, God, you were faithful, And if you are faithful then, you will be faithful now. Our faith is resolute in his faithfulness. And so we walk by faith in the unseen promises of God in Christ. To put it this way, faith is necessary to see the things of God. Verse 6. Without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Church, listen. No one, no one can draw near to God. No one can please God apart from faith. It is impossible. True fellowship with God cannot exist without faith. And the Bible makes it clear that all the blessings of the promises of God come to us by faith. I mean, look at verse five. We see this, this guy, Enoch. Now, there's not a lot in the Bible about Enoch. We we have everything we know about Enoch from Genesis chapter five. If you want to go ahead and turn there, Genesis chapter five, verses twenty-one through twenty-four. You have this guy, Enoch, son of a guy named Jared. I like him already. And it says, when Enoch, verse 21, had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah. He walked with him for 300 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Now, people back then lived way longer. Thus, all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and then he was not, for God took him. Now, as I was reading this, I, I caught something I've never noticed before. Look at verse 22. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah. Now, what happened? He had a kid. He had a son. Now, if you are parents, you know, man, when you have a kid, it changes everything. It changes your whole perspective. You start to realize, oh, man, I got to get my life in order. I, I am raising up this life. And so maybe he had a crisis of faith. Maybe he had a realization. Maybe he saw the degradation of society around him, and he didn't want to raise his, his kid up like that. Regardless, there was a turning point, and at that point, he began to walk with God in intimacy, and he only did that, according to Hebrews 11, by faith, faith in the Lord that Enoch lived by. That was what was pleasing to God. And in Hebrews eleven two, too, it says that the people of old, these faithful folks, were commended by their faith. They had divine approval for their faith. So in its essence, faith is the divinely desired response of mankind to God, namely to what he says. Have you ever thought about why is it salvation by faith? Why not salvation by love? Why not salvation by humility or salvation by hope or kindness? Why is it salvation by faith? Well, God wants us to trust in him at his word. And in the beginning, we did that. Humanity did that. We trusted that God was good. We trusted that he was rightly at the center of the universe, center of everything. We could trust that God knew what was good, knew what was right, and he wanted what what was good and right and best for us. So we trusted God at his word until we didn't. We doubted his word. We doubted his intentions. We doubted his motives. We doubted his heart And mankind, every single human in existence from that point on, from Adam and Eve, have mistrusted God. The fall of mankind occurred because of unbelief. Sin is unbelief. That's what sin is. At its very core, sin is unbelief. When we sin, and we probably, every one of us in here have sinned already a few times today. When we sin, we're saying, God, I know you say to do this or don't do this, but I'm going to go do my own thing. I know you say what is right and good, but I'm going to follow my own definition of right and good. I'm going to do my own thing. I'm going to be my own God. I'm going to determine what is right in my own eyes. I don't trust you. There's got to be more to life than what you offer God. I'm going to, I'm going to do my own thing. I don't trust you. That's unbelief. That's what sin is. And this is why faith is a counterintuitive way of salvation. It goes against the grain of our human nature. It goes against everything within us. Every other worldview, every other religion appeals to works, not faith, works-based righteousness because that appeals to our sense of self-exalting, self-righteous, self-sufficient independence. We want to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. We want to earn our way to God. We want to earn his pleasure by the things we do. And so it's unbelief, it's mistrust of God. And that mistrust exiled humanity from intimacy with God in the garden. And faith is the reversal of that. It's the reversal of unbelief and all its horrific consequences. Faith restores us, it returns us to intimacy with our creator. And therefore, faith is pleasing to God. I Think about this, he delights in our faith Because by faith, we delight in him as we were intended to all along. Faith is necessary to please God. It says without faith, no one can please God. So the the converse has to be true. In faith, we do please God. Think about that, church. Think about that. God delights in our faith. God finds pleasure in us. God is pleased with us. God delights in us in our faith. Our loving Father takes pleasure in us. Man, when I was was thinking about this this week, that blew me away. Wait, God, you take pleasure in me? You delight in me by faith? Last night we were at a wedding and we're at the reception and our little girls are at, we have a, six, a seven-year-old and a 4 year no, seven-year-old and a three-year-old, I'll get it right. And our kids are at the kids' table, and they're off in the corner, and they're with their toys and their games, and they're playing, and they're a whole bunch of kids that they didn't know, but they're making friends, and I'm just standing back and watching them, and I'm just beaming with pride, just, my heart is so full, like, oh, they're making friends. This is wonderful. And it, I was so filled with delight, I was filled with pleasure just looking at, at my girls going out on their own and, and making friends. I, I've shared this before. We love daddy-daughter dates. My girls love daddy-daughter dates. Now, a big part of that is because I bribe them with ice cream and candy from Albany's and games and whatnot. But some of it is because they just love spending time with daddy. And don't you think, listen, as a, as a father, don't you think that when my girl's like, yay, I mean, here they are at the wedding last night, and I'm watching them, and they just wave like this, and I'm like, I just, there's so much delight. Don't you think if, if I, an earthly father, delight in my girls when they have uh, trust, and then when they want to spend time with me, how much more does our heavenly father delight in us by faith in his son? How awesome is that? Come on, church, how awesome is that? Oh, he's so good. It fills his heart when we want to spend time with him by faith. He is a good father. But again, it's only by faith. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. So to draw near to God in faith, one must believe, first of all, he says, that he exists. Now, this sounds like common sense. How or why would I draw near to God if I don't believe he exists? But many believe in God's existence, actually. Do you realize that statistics show that 70 percent, at least 70 percent of our world's population believes in God. some kind of existence of God. In fact, that's a low estimate. Some studies believe it is 90 percent. So let's split the difference. 80 percent of our world believes in God. But is intellectual belief that there is a God is that enough to draw near to God? No. James 2.19, James says, even the demons believe in God and they fear him. They take it a step further and they see his power, his glory, his might, and they are terrified of his power. They respect him. We don't even really do that. So it is enough to just believe that God exists? No, that's why the the author of Hebrews takes it a step further and he says, must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. There seems to be this logical progression here. His existence precedes his character. You have to believe that God exists before you believe that he rewards those who seek him. There was, in the fourth century, a Christian scholar, writer, theologian, named Augustine, St. Augustine. How many of you have heard of Augustine? Wrote several things that are prominent in church history. And one of the phrases he wrote was this. It's in Latin. Crede ut... Intelligio, which means believe that you may understand. Now, I've talked to atheists and agnostics who are like, man, I I would believe in God if he just appeared. Why doesn't God appear? Why does he remain hidden? Why doesn't he just physically manifest himself? If he appears before me, if I physically see him, then I'll believe. But that's not how it works. Jesus says, blessed are those who don't see and still believe. John 20 So believe that you may understand. It's not, okay, I need to know that he exists and then I'll believe in him. I need to see that he exists and then I'll believe in him. It's believe that you may understand. A person must believe in God to know God. That's the way God has set it up. It's by faith alone. Now notice the theocentric nature of faith. Look at the verse again. Those who draw near to God must believe that he is And that he is the rewarder of those who seek him. That's literally how it's phrased. He's the rewarder of those who seek him. So God is at the center of our faith. And we, by faith, diligently seek him. Now, what does it mean to diligently seek something? I don't know about your household, but we lose remote controls like they're going out of style. I mean, all the time. I feel like every month we're losing remote control. They get into that little crack in the couch, there's like a little black hole in there, and then months later we'll find it. And so we're frantically searching for the house. Where's that remote? Where's that remote? I mean there really are only two reasons you diligently seek for something. Either you need it desperately. I I don't know if you've ever been really hungry. I mean really hungry. Not like Pastor Steve said last week, like where you know his daughters or my daughters come up. Daddy, we are starving. Oh, we're so hungry. You have never missed a meal in your life, girls. Oh, I'm so hungry. Okay, I'm not talking about that. I mean like, you know, I've gone a couple days without eating and just famished. That's all I can think about. I mean, stop signs are like turning into cheeseburgers in my mind. I, 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 that's all I can think about. I'm consumed with that thought, that thought. I'm obsessed with it. I want food so badly, so I see it, seek it. I pursue it. It's all you can think about. That might be a reason you desperately seek something or you seek something because you delight in it. Why would I seek something I don't care about? Why would I seek something I don't value, something I don't treasure? I don't like doing the dishes, so I'm not gonna seek an opportunity to do your dishes. Those opportunities usually find me out at at my house, but I'm not gonna go to the dentist just to go to the dentist. I don't like going to the dentist. I'm not gonna seek out an opportunity to go to the dentist. We don't seek things that we don't delight in. We seek things that we do delight in. So, seeking implies either needing or delighting. And through faith in Jesus, it's both. Faith-filled seeking means commitment to his presence and involvement in every part of our lives. It means you can't get enough of Jesus. And what it says here is that God is the rewarder of those who seek him. You tell me, is that good news? Is that good news, church? God is the rewarder of those who seek him. He doesn't have to give us anything, not a red cent, not a shred of anything, but oh, what a God of grace and generosity that he gives us not only just something, he gives us the best thing, namely himself. So the reward for seeking God is God. He's the goal of the gospel. He's the treasure. He's the delight. And we see this all throughout scripture. I'm gonna read several scriptures in rapid fire, Deuteronomy 4.29, you will seek the Lord your God and you will find him if you search after him with all your heart and with all your soul. Second Chronicles 15.2, the Lord is with you while you are with him. If you seek him, he will let himself be found by you. Proverbs 8.17, those who seek me diligently find me. Jeremiah 29.13, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. Luke 11.9 and 10, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks Finds and the one who knocks, it will be opened. James 4, 8, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. I don't know about you, but it seems like the Lord wants us to seek him. And what's incredible is, just like 2 Chronicles 15, he will let himself be found by us. What an amazing promise. But God cannot be found by any other means than faith. So faith has in it this element of valuing, embracing, prizing, delighting, relishing of Christ. It's like Jesus says in Matthew 13, you have this man who finds a treasure in a field. I just imagine a man who is coming home from a long day at work. He cuts through a field to get home. And as he's on his way, he stubs his toe on something. And he looks down and he's like, what is that? Oh, and he sees this treasure and he starts digging around it and it's too big for him to pick up. He can't dig it. It's too heavy. It's too big. And so he runs home and he talks to his wife. He says, listen, we have to sell everything we have. I'm sorry, we got to sell our house, all our possessions, everything. We have to sell all our clothes, our vehicles, everything. We have to sell every little thing. And she's like, what? you, you got to be insane. But it says that he sells everything. He sells all that he has to buy that field because he has to have that treasure That's diligently seeking. And that's by faith. That is what we do when we seek God. So faith is necessary to draw near to God. But what if my faith, maybe you're thinking, what if my faith is not like what we're seeing here? What if it's not resolute or joyful or steadfast or zealous? Well, then, my friend, Welcome to the human experience, because you will never trust God fully. You will never love God fully. I love the story in Mark chapter 9. Jesus approaches his disciples, and there's quite a scene. There's a lot of big commotion going on, and Jesus gets in the middle of this scene, and this dad comes up to him, and he says, what's going on? He says, well, I, I, my son is possessed with a demon, and he foams at the mouth. He falls, he convulses, and this demon tries to harm him, and I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they couldn't. But if you can, would you do it? And Jesus says, If I can. We mean if you can, as if to say, Do you know who you're talking to? He says, All things are possible for him who believes. And I love this. Mark 9 24, the man says, I do believe. Help my unbelief. Family, I can't tell you how much, how often I pray that prayer. I mean, probably every single week. God, I do believe. Intellectually, I get it. I know that Jesus is real. I know the Bible is true. But help me in those moments of unbelief. Help me in those seasons of unbelief. Shore up my faith. Heal my heart. Wherever there is unbelief, eradicate it. Eradicate the doubt and fill me with faith. I do believe. Help my unbelief. That is a good and noble prayer. And Jesus honors that prayer and he heals his son. Oh, church, listen, if you, if you feel like, man, I don't have the right faith, faith is faith regardless of flighty feelings. To kickstart your affections for Jesus, start with gospel truths and meditate on them. Allow that to kindle your faith, which will then ignite your heart and affections for Christ. Bottom line, faith is necessary to see the things of God. To please God and to draw near to God. In 1882, there was a woman by the name of Louisa Stead. And she and her husband and their four-year-old daughter, Lily, went for a picnic on a beach. They go on a nice sunny day to Long Island in New York. And they're there on the beach enjoying their picnic, their lunch together. And as they are doing so, they suddenly heard... Cries, the, the, these shouts, the, someone saying "Help, help!" You know, someone drowning, cries of help, and they spotted this drowning boy in the sea. And so, Mister Stead, with all the courage and he could muster, all the bravery he had, dove right into clothes on and everything, right into the sea, and he swam out to where that boy was. And he tries to pick up the boy, but the, the boy, as often happens, however, the struggling boy pulled his rescuer under water with him, and both drowned. Before the terrified eyes of wife and daughter. And left completely destitute. They had no means of income. I mean, he was the breadwinner. They had nothing. They were left with nothing. No idea what to do. And over the next several weeks and months, they became more and more destitute. And so they prayed. Louisa and her daughter Lily, they prayed. And God provided And out of the why God struggle, God, why? Why would you allow this to happen during those ensuing days? Louisa penned the beautiful, meaningful words of the hymn, "'Tis so sweet," to what? Trust in Jesus. Soon after, Louisa was called into missions, and she and Lily left for South Africa, where Louisa worked as a missionary for years. And some years passed. Luisa passed away after a long illness in 1917 at her home in South Africa, and following her death, it is said, it's recorded that Christians in South Rhodesia, where she was serving, continued to sing her hymn in the local Shona language, "'Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus, just to take him at his word, just to rest upon his promise, just to know, thus says the Lord, Jesus, Jesus." how I trust him, how I've proved him over and over. Jesus, Jesus, precious Jesus, oh, for grace to trust him more. I'm so glad I learned to trust him. Precious, precious Jesus, Savior, friend, and I know that he is with me, will be with me to the end. Church family, I would like you to bow your heads and close your eyes. Billy Graham famously said years ago, probably 50 years ago, he believed that half, about half of all American churches are filled with people who don't know Christ. Well, maybe they've been playing the game of religion, maybe they've been going through the motions, maybe they've been attending church all their life and they think they're saved, but they're not. You In know, Matthew seven, Jesus says to me, it says, uh, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, not, it's actually he says not everyone who says to me Lord Lord will enter the kingdom of heaven but the one who does the will of my father many will say to me on that day Lord did I not perform miracles in your name or cast out demons in your name or do this or that and he says depart from me you workers of lawlessness I never knew you see they were depending on their religion they were depending on their works they were depending on their self-righteousness for salvation to earn their way to God, to earn his pleasure, but without faith, it is impossible to please God. And I can't help but wonder, in fact, I am pretty certain that there are probably here people, maybe there are some men and women here, boys or girls who do not know Jesus by faith. And maybe today is that day. Oh, how we would rejoice in you, rejoice in in, in the Lord and rejoice with you. And in a few weeks, we would celebrate with you in baptism, at the, at the Lake Baptism. Maybe you're here and you're just, <laughs> the Holy Spirit is, is prompting your heart. Please don't let faith get in the way. Don't let, sorry, don't let fear get in the way. Don't let religion get in the way. Don't. Trust in him. Because apart from faith, it is impossible to please